The views and opinions expressed by the individuals in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of its producers, Metaphor Creative Media, its management, or affiliates. Police officers were witness to some of the most amazing things in life. Some comical, some horrendous, and some just plain miraculous. When asked why you went into law enforcement, most officers will tell you because it's like having a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. Today, we saved you a front row seat. This is Observations. From Broadcast Beat Studios in Oakland Park, Florida, Metaphor Creative Media presents a show that gives you a personal glimpse of what law enforcement officers see and do in their typical and not-so-typical day of work. From walking the beat to detective, Rob has 35 years of law enforcement experience. Although the staff are all active or former law enforcement, any views, opinions, and all other show content are in no way official views, statements, or policies of any law enforcement agency. To talk to our host, call the podcast studio toll-free at 888-511-COPS. That's 888-511-2677. Hello again, and welcome to Observations, your front-row seat to the greatest show on earth. I'm your host, Rob Lerner. Unfortunately, my co-host Gary Dickinson couldn't make it tonight. He's a little under the weather. Gary, I hope you feel better, and I hope the Preparation H does the trick. I want to let everybody know we broadcast live every Thursday night at 7 p.m. from the Broadcast Beat Studios located in Oakland Park, Florida on our Observations Facebook page and the Observations Podcast channel on the Metaphor Creative Media YouTube page. If you have a question, comment, or a story you'd like to share, you can join in on the conversation by giving the podcast studio a call at 888-511-COPS. That's 888-511-COPS. 2677. You can also instant message your questions and comments live on our Facebook page. Here on Observations, we attempt to give you a personal glimpse of what law enforcement officers go through on a daily basis. We'll also discuss recent events, happenings, and the latest hot topics pertaining to law enforcement that not only affect the officers, but you, the general public, as well. Last week, we discussed the preparations and sacrifices first responders make when facing a potential catastrophic event, as well as a little history on the evolution of policing through the years. With yesterday being the 18th anniversary of 9-11, the conversation continues with the sacrifices made on 9-11. But unfortunately, there were no preparations to make. We were not prepared for that. Before we go into that, I always like to talk about a few items recently in the news. We're going to talk about a Florida veteran who posted a threatening post to murder as many people as he could on YouTube. Today, these threats are being very uh, taken very seriously. We're also going to speak about a Florida man who hurled urine on a prosecutor during a hearing. See, the police aren't the only ones that have liquid thrown at them. And also, uh, the NYPD is now making fewer arrests since the firing of Daniel Pantaleo and the Eric Garner death. The friction surrounding Daniel Pantaleo's firing comes amid a rash of incidents involving members of the public attacking police officers. I guess when it happens to uh, 
other than the police, they take it very seriously. Maybe they should when we get uh, victimized. We'll continue this conversation on these stories in a bit, but first I want to introduce tonight's guest. Joining us tonight is retired district chief from the Broward Sheriff's Office, Captain Brian Fair. Brian, thank you for coming on, and welcome to Observations. Well, it's great to be here. I just hope I could live up to the uh, reputation of everybody else who sat in this chair before me. I'm, I have uh, the utmost confidence that you'll be able to fill those shoes. Some of those shoes are very big, but I noticed you have some pretty well, big feet. that's good. Some that's good. pretty big know, feet. Richie Batinsky, you know, he's very exciting. I'm not exciting like that, but I'm going to try. I, I hear you. I hear you. Brian, tell us a little bit about your career, if you can. Um, I started as... Uh, a law enforcement officer in 1989 with the city of North Lauderdale. Um, I worked my way up to become a sergeant there, and in my career I was in training, recruiting. Um, we merged with the Broward Sheriff's Office in uh, October 2001. Um, there I stayed pretty much in North Lauderdale. I was also the crisis intervention team uh, coordinator for the agency. I was the uh, uh, crime suppression team supervisor. I supervised SROs, the traffic unit. I was promoted to lieutenant. I was the XO, uh, was the second in command in Parkland for a while, and then I went back to North Lauderdale as the XO or second in command, and I be, was appointed the district chief in 2015. Kind of came full circle. Yep, actually, uh, we did some um, career development courses in North Lauderdale, which was ahead of its time in 1989. They asked me what my career goal was. I said, I want to be the chief of North Lauderdale, and I actually attained, attained my goal, so there, I had a full career. Excellent, excellent. Not too many people accomplish everything they want to, but uh, looks like you do it and then some. I was very lucky. And let me ask you, as I ask all my guests, what did you do prior to getting into law enforcement? Uh, prior to law enforcement, I was, um, you know, I graduated college in 87. I became a law enforcement officer in 89. Between 87 and 89, I actually had my own little landscaping business. That's how I put myself through college. And also, I coached wrestling and uh, substitute taught in uh, the Broward County Schools. Wow. And what was the reason that you got into law enforcement? Um, you know, I, I uh, people always said, oh, you look like a cop. You should become a cop. Uh, you know, I never really thought gave it much thought. But when I did move to Florida, um, I just realized that, you know, I... When I, when I became a police officer, when you became a police officer, they'd ask you in your interview, why did you become a police officer? And you say, I know this might sound corny, but I just want to help people. And that really is why, you know, I have a, it's in me to want to help people. That's why I became a police officer. Now, when you got on, was there an uh, interview prior to being hired? Yes. See, and it's different because when, when I was hired, there, there was no interview. We, we took a test and... If you passed the test, then you moved on to the psychological, and right. then you had a background investigation. So nobody, right. nobody ever asked me because uh, if they did, they would have been surprised at the the answer. You know, when I was a kid, my mother tells me I wanted to be a Magilla gorilla or a cowboy. Well, that's that's good. Those are good choices. Too. Yeah, I, I thought so, but uh, I guess a uh, police officer was the next best thing. And what did you like the most about your law enforcement career? Well, the thing I like most about law enforcement is it's something new every day. Even if it's the same type of call, you can go on a. Um, domestic battery call, which, you know, we had a lot in my career, but sure. every one of them is different. Um, and, and I also like that as a patrol person, you know, you do your job for, you know, a 10 or 12 hour shift. And then as soon as you're done with doing your job, some other nice patrolman or deputy will take your job and do it until you get back in the morning. And 99.9% .9 of the time, it's a fresh day every day with no work waiting for you. Now, I know in your position as a detective, you know, you have all your cases waiting for you, but it's as a uh, you know 
entry-level law enforcement, that's the part of the job I like. It's just doing my job, going home, and not having anything waiting for me the next day. Absolutely. It's funny that you say that because we talk to the guys on patrol. I say, hey, you know, it's nice you do an 8-hour, 10- or 12-hour tour. At the end of the tour, you're done. Yeah. Tomorrow's new, it's fresh. As a detective, depending on your caseload, you can have a bunch of cases that are piling up, and you have to get to them and stay on right. top of them. And, you know, there were times throughout my career I'd be going through my piles of cases and all of a sudden I'd find one and say oh when, when did I get this one yeah you know it, it it'd been there for a while and I would imagine too as a supervisor it's the same thing your day as a supervisor didn't end at the end of your day no I mean as you go up the up the chain and as you be, get more responsibility then you know if you would have seen my desk by the time I was a district chief you know every day you know, I had piles of stuff because you know if I would have defiled the nicely the way a lot of people do, I would have forget about it. So as long as it was at my desk, I knew it still had to be done. It didn't get filed to the project was done. So. No, and the funny thing is, as, as a chief, you have to answer to so many different people with, within the organization, outside the organization, uh, right. the, the community. Um, it's crazy. There's you have to wear a lot of hats. That, yes, there's a lot of hats, a lot of people to answer to, a lot of people to smile at. So. And I'm sure you found you can't make everybody happy. You can't make everybody happy. As a matter of fact, uh, just to tell you something personal, I was thinking I moved to, to out of town, and I was thinking about being on my condo, uh, not a condo, I live in a, but a homeowner's community, right. and I was thinking about being involved in the, um, you know, in the, the board. HOA? If I went to one, one board meeting, and everybody's like, you know, what are you going to do about the ducks? Leave the ducks alone. I feed the ducks. Don't feed the ducks. I mean, some people want the ducks. Some people don't want the ducks. Some and so you, you just can't keep everybody happy. And I did that for 30 years. So I said, hey, you know, I think the HOA position's not for me. And I, the law enforcement careers would probably have been easier than the HOA career. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know. Especially, you know, I remember going to HOA meetings after Hurricane Wilma when, you know, all of a sudden it came time to spend all that reserve money for all the roofs that blew off. Right. And there was no money left, you know. So that's why they had to have police. I don't know if you... Your assignment had to go to all those HOA meetings, but no, I was lucky. A, yeah, they were very um, unruly. Cause well, in my community, we had an HOA meeting, and uh, they had a detail officer there just just for that reason. Right. You know, keep right. the peace. Tonight, we're going to talk about September 11th, the day that changed our lives in so many ways. But before that, each episode, we discuss recent events in the news that are of interest or concern to me as a law enforcement officer such as those I mentioned a moment ago. The first story involves a uh, U.S. Army veteran who was arrested in Volusia County and charged with making written threats to commit a mass shooting or active terrorism. The message was posted during a PBS NewsHour Live video. Several of the posts were anti-Semitic and referred to the recent shooting in El Paso, Texas that left 22 dead. The suspect told authorities that he was merely spoofing another online post that did not mean what he wrote. Now, spoofing, people are doing that with cell phone telephone numbers. Um, you'll receive all these telemarketing calls. A number will come up that resembles somewhat your right, number, right. and you automatically think, oh, it must be somebody I know. Right. But the number is actually non-existent. Right. So what this rocket scientist did, allegedly was spoofed somebody else's website mm -hmm. and uh, to make it look like he was doing it, but thankfully he was arrested. Right. You know, they're taking these threats so serious, seriously today. Right. Well, everything, you know, you, I remember, um, you know, before 9-11, uh, people would call in some crazy, you know, 
complaint and we didn't really take it that seriously after 9-11 a lot of things changed. every complaint was a serious investigated complaint how many calls and i think you even rich you were even mentioning how you handle the anthrax. An anthrax call we would get anthrax calls um in north lauderdale you know boyfriends and girlfriends were mad at each other they send white powder in the mail so you know that's what you you know you have to create a whole crime scene then you find out it was you know a jilted lover, you know, that did it to scare the person. Right. I remember even in uh, the courthouse, they cleared the courthouse out for an anthrax scare. And when, the, you know, the uh, hazmat team got there, they went into the break room. And in a perfect circle near the coffee, there was a white ring where the coffee cup was, where the person missed, you know, the Sugar. kramer. Oh, so, I mean, okay. there was all kinds of calls during that time. Um, and everything had to be taken seriously. You know, we'd get calls, 911, oh, a woman's in Georgia, and uh, she overheard a Mideastern person say that he's going to blow something up. I mean, how do you track that down? But you, we had to try to do it the best we could. So, you know, things changed a lot since then. You know, things that were not taken as seriously or investigated as thoroughly are really investigated as thoroughly as we can do that now because, you know, you never know what's serious and what's not, that we don't have a meter or a fortune teller or a crystal ball to tell us, so we have to do, you know, police work and investigation. Absolutely, uh, because the day that we don't and it goes bad. We don't want to be there that day. You, you, don't, want to be, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that guy yep. that uh, was notified of something and just, yeah, okay, no, no big deal. Right. Um, you know, you talk about with, with the airport, too, the same thing. Everything changed at, at the airport after 9-11. When we would stop people and, and different searches that we had to do, and everybody would say, "Hey, do I look like a terrorist?" And the answer was, "Well, you tell yeah, me what yeah. a terrorist looks exactly. like." Exactly, it'd be much. Would have made my life a lot easier yeah. if they could have told you, right? Right. You know, look at t t uh, Timothy McVeigh. Mm-hmm. Didn't look like a terrorist. Nope. You know, so you know, people say, "Oh, it's an old woman. Does she look like?" Right. Hey, you know what? Somebody who's bent on a mission. Uh, these terrorist groups, they recruit all these different people, different ages, sexes, you know, nobody's immune to it, and anybody right. is possible of carrying it out. And I remember, you know, I met you working at the airport, you know, you were a detective there, and I used to do details there, and um, somebody had white powder in their luggage. So they call me, deputy, come on over here, there's white powder. So, you know, I have a cocaine test kit, so I tested it for cocaine, and it wasn't cocaine. The lady said it was, you know, talcum powder, and then the TSA said, did, did how do we know it's not anthrax? I'm like, well, I don't have my anthrax test kit with me. So if you feel it's anthrax, then let's shut down the terminal and we'll call hazmat here. I mean, you know, so those are the things that go on every day, realistically, that, uh, and you know, that are like turning, uh, closing no, down the terminal. definitely not. Definitely <clears throat> not. And I was just speaking to somebody uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, where they thought a device came to one of the X-ray machines and it looked like possibly an explosive device. Mm -hmm. And they emptied out the terminal and, uh, some of the TSA officers, you know, why are we doing this? He said, well, you just said it looked like a possible device. We have to do it. You know, you have right. to follow protocol at that point. You know, getting back to the mass shooting, uh, today there was, there was also a father in Fort Worth, Texas, that I read that turned in his 27-year-old son who was trying to buy weapons. He had uh, withdrawn a large amount of money from the bank, and he wanted to buy all these weapons. And thankfully, the guy in the gun shop did a background check, and this kid failed. He failed the background check. And the father notified the police the son had a history of mental illness. And when the police encountered them, they had dealt with him in the past, right. and they met up with him and they asked him, hey, you know, what, what were you going to do with these weapons? And he told them, I, I, I want to kill people. Um, they determined that he was off his medications, and it wasn't a credible threat at, at this point, but they 
got him help, and he's now currently in a mental health clinic. Right. Well, thank goodness, you know, at least in, for now, we will never know. And we erred on the side of caution and possibly stopped, you know, another mass shooting. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And, you know, they're taking it so seriously at this point. And you can see a lot of things have been thwarted where these people are making these threats and they investigate and they will get a search warrant or whatever, they'll go to the house and they'll find a cache of weapons and, and a, you know, a stockpile of ammunition where if these people actually decided to carry out their threats, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Well, a couple of weeks after uh, Parkland happened, actually, in the district I worked in, um, a kid asked the teacher, can I go to the bathroom? I have a really bad stomach. So the teacher said yes he was a good kid and he went right to the office and said so and so in class has a gun and sure enough you know they were able to, this SRO was able to respond there and we got a gun off of, of, a, of a child and he said he brought it there because he's being picked on and he planned on using it at lunchtime so you know these things um, unfortunately it's the world we live in There's, even though we had just had that tragedy whether it sparked people on or gave them the idea or it's just something that's going on now kids have access to uh, things that can harm other people and it's uh, something really and that kid that brought it to the attention of the teacher is a hero yeah absolutely i mean you know a lot of kids been af- would have been afraid to tell so it really worked out for us that day it's a perfect example of see something say something yeah and uh yeah who knows what would happen if he didn't especially with the bullying that's going on today and a lot of they see a lot of these guys that have carried out these mass shootings there's, there's a progression Right. Sometimes a lot of them were victimized as children, and it, it just carried on and carried on. We'll get to a breaking point, and, right. you know, it's unbelievable. So that's it on the mass shootings. Unfortunately, every, every day they're in the news. Uh, there was also something that's been in the news frequently, too, that I want to mention. Unfortunately, yesterday, uh, an 11th member of the retired member of the New York City Police Department took his own life. He was a retired sergeant, 49 years old, in Goshen, New York. And it seems almost every episode that we're doing observations, we're talking about this. It's nonstop. Um, we don't know what the reasons are. There was no note left behind. But it seems like an epidemic in New York right now. Yes. You know, when we were talking earlier, um, every cop has been on the job for more than a year, has seen and done things they wish they hadn't seen or done. And they um, things that other people have no idea of what, police are experiencing and you know when you see a person you don't or a police officer or any person you don't know what they've just previously experienced but when you see for lack of a better term death and destruction for a whole career it does have an impact on people's people and if you can't um, get the appropriate help or you don't have the appropriate support system it can take its toll and it looks like in New York City it's taking its toll you know obviously um, it's a very large department with 35, 40,000 officers, um, but it's taking its toll on what's going on there. You know, there's it's a big city, and I'm sure these um, officers are, you know, handling and doing a lot of things on a daily basis, and they don't necessarily get much support from the community and or their leaders, leadership either. Which is a big problem. I just briefly saw something about a bill that they're trying to pass to help with the mental health with the New York City police officers where it's strictly confidential, and I believe they're trying to put possibly counselors in the precincts so how confidential it's really going to be right. i don't know but they, they have to do something and, and they're trying they're attempting to do something to help it because it's, it's definitely out of control well, i went back to school in 1993 to get my master's degree in psychology i did get a master's degree in mental health counseling and i was going to go towards that track of uh, providing um, therapy to bigger departments and being a therapist for police officers i didn't end up doing that but um 
there is just a lot of a lot of stuff to deal with and not necessarily many outlets and as you know cops are supposed to be tough you know we we've all seen somebody blow their heads off in front of us or we know people who have and sometimes people who have seen tragedy might as a cop you know be upset want to take a day off you know cry whatever and, and other cops will say oh what's wrong with them you know what i mean they'll say oh you know don't be such a baby or get over it i mean you just and that's what we expect to do so is a cop going to go running for help i remember a an in the line of duty death in this agency and um that happened in a city and uh we were all gathered, you know, to try to find the bad guy. And, you know, obviously that city had to continue. And, and I was a supervisor at the time. And they got everybody who's going to be on duty, including the shift that was on, that would work with this deputy that was killed in line of duty. They go, anybody who uh, is too upset to, um, to work tonight, raise your hand and you can go home. I'll leave before to do that opportunity. Was that the right way to handle that? No. Okay. So, you know, um, we are supposed to be tough guys, and, and we don't, you know, not want to recognize or admit that we need help. You know, we're helpers. Right. As helpers, we don't want or need or want to ask for help, but really we do need help. As a matter of fact, we need probably more help than most people. You know, I've said before, we're the problem solvers. Right. You know, and it, my wife and, have, have, and I have had this discussion many times. You know, Jack, uh, cops are jacks of all trades. Right. Uh, you know, we all are jacks of all trades and masters right, of none. Right. Yeah. We're doctors on sick calls. We're uh, marriage counselors when we go to family mm -hmm. disputes, even though sometimes our own marriages are falling right, apart. Right. You know, and you're, you're the guy you have to fix it. So now when you need help, I don't know if you feel it's a sign of weakness right. and you just keep it in. Um, and apparently, I said, you know, the police aren't the only ones that are getting doused with liquid today. Yes. The, yes. There was just an incident at the uh, Broward County Courthouse where a convict who was awaiting sentencing uh, attacked the prosecutor this week by throwing... Uh, urine all over him and according to a police report on Thursday Albert Narvez who is 28 is now facing an additional charge of battery for his attack on an assistant uh, district attorney the urine aside from going all over his clothes also went into his mouth according to the arrest report uh, yeah <laughs> and uh, he'd been jailed he was uh, waiting to be sentenced for a attempted murder with a firearm the uh, prosecutors had secured a conviction at trial against him for attacking his former girlfriend and holding her at gunpoint inside a car and then shooting at her when she managed to get out and run away in Hallandale Beach. One of these state attorneys ma made a uh, statement. He said, we are absolutely incensed by what occurred. I wish the public knew the number of threats prosecutors receive on a daily basis, but they have the courage to go into court every day to ensure that justice is pursued against these violent offenders said the uh, Broward chief assistant attorney uh, attorney Jeff Marcus you know it's, it's kind of ironic that that's it's like rain on a wedding day but anyway yeah absolutely yeah. Uh, I, I can't think of the next verse of that song otherwise it would have came right back at you sorry I'm it's a free ride when you're already paid that's it thanks you know, I'm having a senior moment no problem um, but when it happens to other people it, it, it's horrendous and it, you know we're on the same team the prosecutor's office and the law enforcement we're supposed to be on the same team you know and, and we are but when you say the daily number of threats of prosecutors how about the daily number of threats that are made to police officers and the the assaults and the physical attacks on them yep it's um you're not a person i mean really I, as a police officer um people hit you 
And the prosecutors, you know, they, they plead it down to a simple battery of a, just a regular person, misdemeanor, and, and uh, you know, it, it's personal now, you know, and when you get urine thrown at you, I mean, for everybody out there in podcast land, think about that. You know, um, I've never had urine thrown at me, but I know for a fact that people I've worked with in the Broward Sheriff's Office that worked in a jail, that's not an unusual occurrence to have bodily fluids thrown at you. And, and, and solid and, yeah, waste. Yeah, and, and these are human beings. How would you all react? It's, it's, it's disgusting. I mean, so um, it's a terrible thing for anybody to have for that, for anybody to have that happen to them. Um, and now all of a sudden it happens to a prosecutor and it's big news. It's big news, and you know, and the the punishment should uh, it should be severe for doing something like that. And on the other hand, when it happens to a police officer in New York, some of the politicians were saying, "Well, it was just water. You know, it was hot out." Hey, it, you know, if it was the politician, I said this before, if it was the politician that had the water dumped on him. They'd be screaming, "Holy hell!" And, and want these people arrested. Well, I do know that, you know, in, in my career, people, neighbors get into neighborhood disputes and they squirt water at each other. We've made arrests on that. That's an unlawful touching. They the neighbor who got the water didn't want it, and the person who, who caused the touching goes to jail. That's, right. a, that's a crime. Absolutely. Battery. So, so for police officers to have to endure that in New York City, and, you know, I don't know the political climate in New York City. But it's I do, horrible. I do know that there's a political climate here in Broward County. Everybody has their political climates. But here, I do know that if somebody sprays water on a deputy or any law enforcement officer in Broward County, somebody should be going to jail. Absolutely. And I don't think that there's any leadership in Broward County that I'm aware of that would have a problem with that. I don't believe so either. I think they're very supportive of their law enforcement. And on, on that note, related to New York City, arrested down in New York um, since the firing of Daniel Pantaleo. And on one of the episodes we talked about, I was wondering what the repercussions are going to be with the firing of him. You know, these police officers go out to do their job every day. And again, and I've said it over and over again, the death of Eric Garner was tragic, preventable. He could have prevented his own death if he just complied and put his hands behind his back. Um, but the arrests have plunged since, since then, and they're pointing to a possible slowdown, you know, with the police department. O over the years, it was a slowdown or a blue flu. You know, people weren't responding as quickly. Uh, felony arrests were down about 11 percent. Misdemeanors down 17 percent. Um, you know, Police Commissioner uh, O'Neill has seen a 32 percent drop in uh, moving violations as well. So the summons activity, the activity that... Uh, the city relies on for revenue because it's a revenue building thing. Right. Tickets makes them money. Is down thirty two percent. You know, O'Neill, O'Neill said uh, he stopped short of saying that it's an intentional slowdown. With that, you know, and they're monitoring right now sick time usage. He was going because usually right. at this time sick time everybody's calling in sick. And you know, and New York has unlimited sick time, right? Yes, 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 they do. They're monitoring that. They're also. Uh, monitoring response time to make sure that the officers are responding in a timely fashion. And I can tell you from my years in New York, <coughs> we went through a period of times where it was very adversarial with the city right. and the police department itself. And at no time did we ever endanger the public by not responding to calls, right. you know, urgent right. calls. We, right. we as police officers didn't want to see anybody get get hurt no matter right. what. Right, and you know, most people get into law enforcement to help people. They know that they have family and friends in the community, and they're going to go out there and help people. But it is, um, 
I have talked to people who are still in law enforcement, I'm retired, um, that are supervisors and leaders and say, how do I get my people motivated when there are things happening in the news where police officers are doing their jobs and they're getting indicted for it? You know, we had the case in Broward County um, in Oakland Park where, you know, a guy, you know, multiple people called and said there's a guy walking down Dixie Highway with a gun. And the police get there and there was a gun on scene and the felt deputies felt threatened and they shot and killed the person who had the gun. Now, anytime somebody's shot and killed or injured in any way, it's a, it's terrible. Sure. It's terrible for no matter even if they're the worst person in the world. There's family, there's mothers, there's friends and loved ones that are devastated. Those people's lives are devastated. And, and, it, and it, people don't realize the effect that it has on the officer himself. Right. Exactly. And so nobody's going to take it that it's a devastating, tragic incident. But I think nobody would argue that, you know, some a deputy felt that his life was threatened and he was had to use his legal authority and real legal right to defend himself and with lethal force. And that deputy was indicted for that. So when a deputy is indicted for doing what we've all been trained is, you know, the use the legal use of force and and you know, now his is facing life in prison, it's hard to motivate people to go out there and engage the community. I mean, that's just the truth of the matter. We're all people. We have family. We have bills. You know, nobody wants to lose their job. Uh, and we all want to go home at the end of the day. Right. And the other side of that coin is a situation like that, you hope and pray that it doesn't cause an officer who's involved in a similar situation right. to, hesitate. to hesitate. Right. Because you know, yep. that makes all the difference. You know, the president of the uh, NYPD PBA, Pat Lynch, said in the wake of the firing that officers would continue to uphold their oath to serve and protect the public but not by needlessly jeopardizing our careers or personal safety. So, and, and the message is, hey, do what you have to do. Um, but Don't look for trouble. Don't, don't shake bushes. Don't sneak up on people. Don't do traditionally what, you know, 30 years when I started law enforcement made you a good police officer. Going and finding criminals because criminals don't like to be detected. Right, proactive. Right. Uh, the days of the proactive policing is, uh, are going to be non-existent it's at some point. It's going to be hard. Even policies now are written so that um, it errs on the side of not doing your job. I mean, candidly, it's tying a lot of people's hands. You know, we talked earlier about, you know, um, 30 years ago when I started, uh, you know, if somebody committed a serious crime that was endangering the community, you can pursue them in a vehicle. Now, if somebody commits a crime, and I understand it, people um, get in accidents and cause innocent people to be harmed during vehicle pursuits. So I do understand the reason we shouldn't be getting in vehicle pursuits if not necessary. But there are times when the um, it's necessary to catch this person because if you don't catch them, the community at large will be in more jeopardy than the actual pursuit costs. So. It's just a, it's a tough time to be in law enforcement. That's the truth of the matter. It's just a very tough time to be in law enforcement. Very. And, uh, you know, my nephew just got hired by Dallas, Texas, and this is something that he was always wanted to do, and I wish him the best. And right. It's definitely tough roads ahead. Tough roads ahead. Um, you know, Pat Lynch also uh, urged each officer to make their own choice, uh, to proceed with the utmost caution in the new, re in the new reality which it is a new reality right. of policing today uh, where the actions may be deemed to be reckless for just doing your job. So it's changed. 
It's definitely changed. I don't think you can get anybody that would argue that fact. No, it's it's different times. And I remember when I started, I was told, hey, the job is changing. And, you know, it was back in 1984, and I had a fantastic career, and I had the time of my life, and it, never had a bad day on this job. But I see the changes that are happening now, and I sometimes I say, you've got to be crazy to th- get into this profession today. You know, yesterday was the 18th anniversary of uh, the 9-11 attacks, and they were a series of four well-coordinated attacks by al-Qaeda, involving two airlines with four different aircraft. Um, and that was September 11, 2001. The attacks killed approximately 3,000 3, people, including 412 first responders, injured another 6,000 others, and caused at least $10 billion in infrastructure and property damage. Additional people die of 9-11 cancer diseases in the months and years that followed and continue to do so today. The uh, four passenger airlines operated by two major U.S. airlines, United and American, all of which departed from airports in the northeastern United States, were bound for San Francisco and Los Angeles, were hijacked by 19 al-Qaeda terrorists. Two of the planes, American Airlines Flight 11 and United Airlines Flight 175, were crashed into the north and south towers, respectively, of the World Trade Center complex in Lower Manhattan. Within an hour and 42 minutes, both 110-story towers collapsed. A third plane, American Airlines Flight 77, was crashed into the Pentagon in Arlington County, Virginia, which led to a partial collapse of the building's west side. The fourth plane, United Airlines Flight 93, was initially flown towards Washington, D.C., but crashed into a field in Stony Creek Township near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, after its passengers thwarted the hijackers. You know, I'll, I'll never forget that day. There are certain events in life where things happen. You, you'll always remember where you are. Yeah. And uh, 9-11 is the single deadliest terror attack in human history and the single deadliest incident for firefighters and law enforcement officers in the history of the United States. With 343 and 72 killed, respectively. Uh, last week, we talked about preparations for catastrophic events. There were no preparations for 9-11. The mobilization order for the NYPD officers would broadcast over television and radios. If they weren't able to contact them by telephone, it was broadcast on national networks. These officers responded, leaving their families behind, not knowing what they were getting into. Some weren't home for three days. Some never came home. You have to wonder what kind of mental strength it takes and courage to not rush home to your own family and, you know, understanding the greater good and take off to, to do what we're trained to do. You know, unfortunately, there was really no training when it came to um, 9-11. But, but you realize, you know, it's hit the fan and we, and when I say we first responders, I wasn't there. Um, do what they have to do, you know, and they yes. respond. We all remember where we were that day, for those of us who were alive and born. But, you know, those 20-year-old, because if you're 20 years old, you were five when that happened. You don't even really realize the world before 9-11. But like you said, we didn't prepare for it. We didn't expect it. The owners of the uh, World Trade Center, they didn't expect it either because they didn't have 100% coverage for a complete loss. No. So nobody ever believed that that could happen. I remember I was um, 
as I mentioned earlier when I gave my introduction, I started with the North Lauderdale Police Department. On October 1st, 2001, we merged with the Broward Sheriff's Office. At the time, the sheriff's, uh, one of his big things was power track, if you remember sure. those days. And um, one of the things they wanted to do for all the North Lauderdale employees was to take them to a power track meeting to get them up to speed as to what the sheriff expects from everybody. So we were um, in between sessions, you know, there used to be three districts at a time would be a power tract, as they call it. And so the first group went, then it was intermission. Then from intermission, somebody came in and sat next to me and goes, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, some plane probably flew into the World Trade Center and fell down, <laughs> you know, like a little commuter plane. Who would ever, I never in a million years thought it could be a real plane. So mm -hmm. then they had the uh, meeting for a couple more minutes, and then the sheriff at the time said, due to the fact that what happened to the World Trade Center, we're going to stop the meeting, and if any everybody here from the port stay behind and everybody else leave. I'm like, well, that's weird, you know? Then so the person I drove to the uh, power track meeting with put the radio on and said, and the second tower or the first tower collapsed. I'm like, this is some bad reporting. It made it sound like the whole building collapsed. I mean, it must have been a floor in the building collapsed. Right. No, I never in a million years thought that it would be possible for the World Trade Center to collapse. And then we all know the rest of that story. Sure. But that's how unbelievable this was that I didn't even comprehend that, that they were reporting the news correctly. Nobody did. We have a call. Let's take this call. And Hello, uh, Jennifer. Hi. Uh, hi, how are yeah. you? Thank you? Thanks for giving us a call. How are you this evening? I'm doing fine. Just a little sad remembering 9-11 yesterday. Um, just had a, a short story. I tried to call my brother Michael because he was down uh, when the towers were uh, going off. Um, and I remember him saying, uh, and also his uh, son was there, that he got on the back of a bus, my uh, stepson, and it, it was bedlam down there. And I'm, I'm so happy that my brother is alive today. And sorry for all the lost souls that we lost that day. They will never be forgotten. No, no, they won't. May they rest in peace forever. Yes. Absolutely. I'm glad your brother so came out okay. Okay. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for calling in. You're welcome. You have a great um, night. It's just such a sad uh, thing to have happen. Yes. Yes, it is. Hey, hello to my son, Danny. He's probably in the studio somewhere in there. Okay. Thank you so much for I'll, I'll let him know. I'll let him know you said hello. Okay, great. Okay. Good night. Good night. Um, you know, I need to, when I, I said I, w I wasn't there for 9 11, um, and I just want to give uh, just a little history background on myself. What happened was uh, I, w I was hired in 1984 for the police department, and although we had a 20 year retirement, I wound up vesting out after 17 years due to my wife's health and the need for a warmer climate. And when I left, the guys I worked with thought I was out of my mind. They said, Hey, you, you've got three years left to go. Why, why are you leaving? You know, send your wife and the kids down to Florida and finish out your three years for your retirement. Well, I didn't make enough money to support two households. And my kids at the time, my daughter was 10, my boys were 14 and 18. You have, you have to be there for the kids. Right. And if my wife got sick, I had to be there. 
now leaving early, investing out, I, I left a lot of money on the table. And it, it bothered me to some degree, but when I look back now, um, you know, it was the smartest thing that, that, that I ever did, that we ever did the decision. Because I, I would have been there. I lived in Staten Island. I right. wouldn't have been there at, at ground zero when the occurrence happened, but I'm sure I would have had to respond there. And because I live close into uh, close proximity to the Fresh Kills landfill, it, logistically, it would have made sense for me to be there every day. Right. And if I was, I might not be sitting here today. So that's uh, true. A lot of um, bad stuff was 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 uh, inhaled uh, and breathed in during the cleanup and rescue. Right. Non nonstop. And believe it or not, we have another call. Hang on one second. It's uh, believe it or not, it's Gary Dickinson. Gary Dickinson, you're, you're on the air. Hey. How are you feeling? How are you doing? Good. Did the, did the uh, medication help? Uh, I'm doing a little bit better, but I, I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't come in tonight. To, I couldn't cough into the phone and, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I wanted to call in and talk about 9-11 a little bit before I uh, um, get off the subject, okay? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um... You know, I, I, I know that everybody remembers uh, who they were with, where they were at, kind of like our parents did for Pearl Harbor. But um, I was with, uh, I was supposed to, I was on the Russian Organized Crime Squad, and I got to know a real good FBI agent by the name of John R. I won't say his last name because I don't have his permission, but, <clears throat> and he got transferred to a drug squad, so I was going to meet him in the lobby of the Sheriff's Department and take him upstairs and introduce him to some of the different drug squad guys. So I met him in the lobby, and uh, and John said to me, Hey, did, did you hear on the radio that um, one of the towers is on fire? They say, you know, like a plane crashed into it or something. I said, Really? He said, and we were walking towards the elevator, and he said to me, You know, Gary, they really better be careful because those terrorists tried to blow up the, uh, the towers in 93. And they're not over, and they're going to come back and do it again. I said, yeah, you're probably right, John. They really need to watch it because they're going to come back. So we get in the elevator. We go upstairs. We walk in. I can't find anybody. I'm walking around the whole place. Nobody's at their desks. And I hear a TV going, and I walk over in the corner. And hear these guys are all around the TV. And we're, wa we're watching it. And John looked at me, and he says, I told you. And just as, just as he said that, the second plane came around the corner and was heading for the tower, and before it even struck it, somebody in the group that was watching said, oh, my God, we're at war. And uh, and that was it. And then after after that, I got um, I got transferred to the, uh, the counterterrorism squad, and the very next day I got assigned with uh, a couple of FBI agents and I, and we went and served the search warrant on uh, Muhammad Atta's apartment in Hollywood. And then uh, after that, I had to. We did those ridiculous calls for the white powder calls and all that, like you were talking about. Yeah, you know, when you mentioned uh, Otto, he uh, actually learned to fly, I think, five minutes from where I live in Lantana, that little uh, airport over there. That's where he was taking flying lessons. Yeah. All right, but are you feeling a little better? Yeah, I'm doing good. I just wanted to uh, call in. Uh, you know, my nephew was a NYPD cop at the time when 9-11 happened and uh, I know I talked to you about this before but he um, he was sent over to the site 
to uh, direct traffic and to keep people in and out. And he was on the site there. And he ended up uh, years later getting uh, uh, critical uh, leukemia. And fortunately for him, he got a bone marrow transplant for a lady in England. was a 100% match. And thank God he's still alive today. Thank God. Um, but he was one of the lucky ones, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And he... He wasn't even there. He just had he just had to go there for a few days, and and I, and I, I got to tell you, I was I was talking to a guy at the airport about 9/11, just one of the civilian guys you know that worked at the Fort Lauderdale airport with us, and and he said, I'm still in psychological counseling over 9/11. I said, You are? He said, Yes. He said, uh, All these years later, I, I said, Well, wh- why? And he said that him and his boss. We're in the Twin Towers, and they ran out. And they started running away from the building. And as he ran, he kept feeling stuff hitting him in the back. And when he got where he was going, somebody told him there's blood and, and goo all over your back. Mm. And it turns out it was the people jumping out of the tower buildings, and their bodies were exploding, and it was hitting him in the back as he was running away. Horrific. And that's... Uh, That'll that, do it. That's, that that had to be really taxing for him mentally. Absolutely, that'll definitely. But uh, uh, yeah, I just wanted to share a few of those stories. And uh, sorry, I couldn't be there tonight to join the conversation better. Me too. Remember, you can use that cream three times a day. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I'll speak to you during the week. I feel better. Okay, I'll let you guys go. Uh, Have a good uh, now. Nice going, Brian. Oh, thank you, thank you. All right. Good bye night, bye. Gary. Bye. 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 Um, you know, like I said, before, there, there are certain events in your life that you'll always remember where you were. Obviously, 9-11 being one, but it's the same thing as when Kennedy was assassinated right. or Martin Luther King. And I remember on September 11th, when I, when I was hired by the agency, they originally wanted me to start September 1st. But I had to get my affairs in order to get my family situated. So on the 11th, I got my kids. We dropped them off to school. My wife had a, a salon appointment for her hair, so I had nothing to do. So I went with her. I was listening to Howard Stern in the morning. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I hear this, the first plane crash, and oh my God, a plane crashed into the World Trade Center. And just like you and everybody else thought, oh, it must be a small commuter plane, an accident. You know, oh, it must have been an accident. And then it was, uh, you know, 15 to 20 minutes later, they announced a second plane crash. And at that point, you knew it wasn't an accident. And that's uh, pretty much when our world changed. Yeah. That, that, that's when everything changed. Um, you know, at this point, I would have asked Gary hey, if, he, if Gary was here, if he wasn't under the weather, wh- where he was and where you were. But we know right. we know where you are and where I was. Um, you know, and they say everything happens for a reason. Like I said, if I had stayed in New York, I believe I would have been assigned to uh, Fresh Kill every day. You know, and uh, the Fresh Kill facility for people that know is where they would bring all the f- refuse for the officers to sift through, looking for body parts and IDs. And uh, a friend of mine, because I'm from New Jersey, a friend of mine worked in the tallest building in a financial district in Jersey City. He said that he and all the people he worked with went on top of the building after they heard the first uh, plane hit and and he saw the second one coming. He said he ran past women, children, and children. <laughs> he ran past everybody. He didn't care and he just kept running. I mean that's how it freaked a lot of people out and it had a big impact on people returning to work, wanting to go to work, working in tall buildings. I mean it really had a big impact on the way we do police work, the way we look at the 
you remember the airports prior to 9-11, it was some somebody with, a, with a wand mm-hmm. and a little fake, uh, you know, metal detector. Right, it was one, and two, it, three. it created a whole department, Department of Homeland Security, a whole TSA. That's how big of a deal it was. Yeah. And abs- still is. I mean, it's not gotten... You know, obviously, and, uh, and it's not going to. Right. It's something that's going to be a, a way of life for us. You know, they deal with it in Israel all the time at the airports. Right. And it's something. It's it's a way. Unfortunately, it's a way of life. You know, and they say everything happens uh, for a reason. Friends of my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law were supposed to be on that flight from Logan, but canceled at the last minute. I think one of them got sick, and they would have left their children orphans. Um, another friend that I had, his mother worked in one of the towers, and she was late going to work that day. And instead of going right up to the office, she went into an odd lot store to get some stuff. So she was actually in the store when the first plane hit. So she she got out of there. So it's all these little things. You know, sometimes we get aggravated when we get stuck in traffic or something throws us our routine off and we get delayed. But sometimes there's a reason these things happen. Yes, absolutely. You know, and sometimes we got to say, thank God we did. And I say, thank God we moved when we did. You know, because God knows what would have happened. You know, uh... Personally, I didn't know anybody, any of the first responders personally that, that were killed right. at the time of 11, uh, the incident. Unfortunately, I know quite a few that have died post 9-11 from cancer-related illnesses. Right. Um, and as Gary just said, his nephew came down with leukemia. Um, do you know That's anybody? I don't, I, when I was working details at the airport, there were some retired NYPD guys there that had been disabled out and were working um, for BCAD. Mm-hmm. Um, they had some issues right but they were able to still function i mean i don't know how i haven't followed up on those guys i hopefully they're still around yeah hopefully absolutely um i have a very good friend of mine who i I speak with uh all the time and love the job cops cop loved going to work every day and he was down at, at ground zero and then he was down at the fresh kills facility for a very long time and wound up getting a disability pension on his lungs Mm mm-hmm and then recently they found something within uh, his esophagus. And I, th- I think it was precancerous, but he's been going. He had his seventh treatment the other day, and what they do is they go in and they burn everything. I, I guess cauterize whatever they do, right. and it's you know something that you have to watch. You it's know. not something anybody should have to go through. I'm no. just trying to save people. You know, just like uh, people say, what's so? What's the big deal about being a cop or a firefighter? You know, because when everybody's running from danger, we're running towards danger. And um, I really haven't in my career ever met anybody who, when the um, call came, didn't run towards danger. Right. So um, when not everybody's perfect, but we're all in this business to try to help people. And uh, we try to, you know, give the same, same service that we would want our family to have if they would need a law enforcement service. And that's the way I pr- pretty much think I could speak for most uh, law enforcement out there. Yeah, that's what we do. You know, we do what we have to and if we, if we didn't god you know imagine what the world would be like you know last year uh was the 17th anniversary of uh september 11th and uh, at this point they, they counted back then they counted almost 10,000 first responders downtown workers residents students and others with cancer related 9-11 illness that number today is much higher the centers of uh, disease control and prevention has long maintained that around 400,000 people in Lower Manhattan were exposed to dangerous mix of substances such as uh, asbestos, lead, and benzene on the day of the attacks and the weeks and months afterwards. 
the uh, New York City disaster, it was people around there were exposed to so many different poisons and everything. Now, we have all these first responders so many years later that are coming down with these cancer-related illnesses and unfortunately passing away. But when you look at 400,000 people that were possibly exposed to this or were exposed, it's, only, you know, it's scary. It's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I mean, and those are the people who are attributing it to their experiences. Some people probably don't put the two and two together, you know, that were in the area or doing something that, you know, they got sick, but they don't really say, they don't think because of whatever, you know, um, distance they had from 9-11 or from the from ground zero, I'm sure that there's people who don't even realize they, they got sick or had uh, physical effects and illnesses from the uh, what would, whatever particles were floating in the air. And and the particles that you mentioned were carried all the way into Brooklyn. You know, anywhere within a, a certain radius, they carried over, and people unknowingly, unknowingly were inhaling these substances. You know, when you, when you talk about Grand Zero, I was talking to one of my old partners the other day, and he relayed a story. Um, you know, a time of tragedy like this, we had people from all over the country responding, you know, different states, people from out of the country. Everybody wanted to come and help and lend a hand. And he was telling me he was uh, part of the bucket br brigade at right. Ground Zero and what it was to get a, a picture of it. It was like an assembly line of officers, and they all had five-gallon buckets that were loaded, and they were passing it from one to the other to the other until finally it ended up on a barge, and that barge would ultimately end up in Staten Island. But he was telling me there were three police officers that came from San Francisco, two men and a woman, and they brought a cadaver dog with them. <coughs> and as he was passing the buckets, all of a sudden he noticed that they were lowering one of the officers into this gaping hole that led to God only knows where with the dog. And here you have somebody who left his family in, in California yep. going into a hole, not knowing what was down there or if he'd be coming back up. You know, there were just so many selfless acts that were performed every day. And, uh, you know, not knowing what the dangers are. And the thing is, we, we expect so much of our first responders. You know, people expect so much of first responders. Right. And we ask very little in return. You know, just a little respect and a thank you and everything that they've done and now you have people throwing water on them and throwing buckets on them and it's you know well you know that that's what's popular now but you know i don't know if you've ever had that experience i've been on you know hot police calls and people in the crowd just start throwing rocks for no reason and i know that that happens a lot in new york city but i mean you know I'm not talking about New York City. I'm talking about locally here in Broward County. Sure, no, everywhere. It's, yeah. it's, it's unfortunate. We've had, I remember there were times where uh, firemen needed an escort, a police escort, where there were shots being fired at, at, at firemen. These are the guys that are coming to uh, put out fires, save your lives or whatever, and, and people. And thankfully, it's a small minority. Right. But no, it's that, that people don't even let people help them. You know, they're, they're shooting at the people we're coming to help them you know yeah it's 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 insane it's insane you know recently a retired new york city detective wrote about uh, what it was like sifting through through human remains at the fresh kills landfill in staten island he titled it the seldom heard story of 911 although i wasn't there and i thank god i wasn't reading it brought me there i could actually picture it it was i i felt it very moving it was very strong um, with everything that we see, and we discussed it before, the things we see, the gruesomeness, the blood and the guts, everything that we see, and I, I've seen in my career, and I've seen a lot, I can't even begin to imagine 
with the men and women that were at ground zero and went to the fresh kills landfill did every day, what they saw and for so long. Right. You know, it's just, uh, you can't imagine. I, I would imagine somebody that was involved in, in war, a combat veteran, war combat veteran, could relate to it. I wanted to read the story. It's called The Seldom Heard 911 Story, written by a, new, a retired New York City detective that was at the Fresh Kills landfill. So I'm, I'm going to read it, so please bear with me. Okay. Mention the Fresh, Fresh Kills landfill in the same sentence with 9-11, and most civilians and some cops will look at you and have no idea what you're talking about. For me, the story is fresh in my mind's eye. You wake up at 3 a.m., grab a huge cup of coffee, jump in the car, and leave your home in beautiful Orange County. You cruise south on the New York State Thruway, then on to 17th South through the New Jersey through New Jersey in the dark. You make the two-hour ride out to the Fresh Kills Landfill in Staten Island. You arrive and park your car at the bottom of this monstrosity of a hill. You're in work clothes and construction boots. Boots you received months prior at Ground Zero while working around the pile. Boots you got for free from Stanley Tools, who donated hundreds of boots to first responders, and I am forever grateful to Stanley. Not only for the actual boots, but I'm thankful for the thought of a company willing to lend a hand by supplying first responders with simple supplies to help them perform. At the bottom of the landfill, you're directed to a makeshift bus stop where other detectives and work clothes are waiting. Every so often, you may catch a familiar face, but most are strangers, but still brothers. Detectives from other commands and boroughs. It's hard to explain the feeling of being a brother to a total stranger. A stranger who shares your same struggles and who understands being a cop. Everything is mud and gravel at the landfill, and in some spots it's both mud and gravel. An old bus comes down the hill and everyone hops on. The bus takes you up a long winding road to the top of the landfill. Up on top, you're told to get off. There are a couple of makeshift structures and some military dome structures with ventilators feeding fresh filtered air into the domes. There is a structure marked morgue. You're fitted with a white Tyvek type suit, a respirator mask, and some goggles, as well as given work gloves. You're told at that time that you're working a 12-hour shift. You're going over to a sifter and given a number corresponding to the sifter. You're assigned to uh, and pointed in a general direction. The orders are that you're not allowed to leave the sisters unless someone relieves you and takes your place. You will be sent relief for a short break at mid-morning, for lunch at midday, and maybe another short break mid-afternoon. You were told that barges are bringing rubble across the bay from the World Trade Center and dumping it at the bottom of the landfill where it will be trucked up to your sifter and others manned by other detectives. All except the very large pieces will be loaded on the bottom of your huge sifter, which would normally be used for recycling garbage, but as of now, it's being used to look for body parts and human remains. You're told you will have two buckets next to you. Body parts go into one, and personal property, pictures, wallets, work IDs, etc. go into the second bucket. When you're relieved on break, you bring the bucket with whatever you found to the morgue or evidence collection building. The Fresh Coast landfill had been capped earlier the year before. It was no longer being used for garbage collection. A thick membrane was placed over the mounds of garbage and tons of topsoil placed over the membrane. The landfill had been temporarily reopened that year as a search station in an effort to search and recover remains of 9-11 victims and to sort through the rubble for evidence. Everything on the hill was soil and earth with huge dump trucks dump trucks driving up and down the dirt roads, delivering and removing debris to and from the search sites. The dump trucks are huge with ties as tall as a man. You make your way to your designated sifter. 
When you arrive, when you arrive, you can't believe the size of the contraptions. You see one fellow detective looking and waiting to be relieved by you. On the other side, there is another tired-looking detec detective waiting for his relief. The noise from the sift sifters is deafening. The, de 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 the detective shakes your hand, then takes his buckets, leaves you the two empty buckets, and is off and gone at the blink of an eye. You stand there on a makeshift scaffolding, watching him quickly walk, walk across the field like he's trying to escape from something. For a moment, he turns and looks over at you, but keeps walking. The sun is just beginning to peek over the horizon. You muse over the sifter, which is attached to a conveyor belt. The whole machine is vibrating violently, breaking apart the debris as it approaches you on the conveyor belt. You have a precious few seconds to spot something important before it passes, and then it's gone and falls over the back edge of the conveyor into a pit where a backhoe operator clears what has already been looked at. Luckily for you, you brought along a Walkman to listen to music to drown out the noise. It's hard to recall now whether it was a cassette player or a CD Walkman. Not really important, but amusing that you can remember that and other things so vividly. You stand there head down looking at the rubble coming past you. Plumes of dust comes off the debris from the vibration directly into your face. You can still smell it, even with the mask on. You know the smell from working at Ground Zero months earlier. Years later, you notice the same smell every time you climb the drop downstairs and enter your home attic where you stored your old 9-11 clothing, helmet, gloves, and boots. The smell is chalky, synthetic, damp, almost like glass if glass had a smell. The dust clings to everything. You eventually remove all the old equipment from your attic and dump it. You do it because you don't like the place that the scent brings you back to. Back at the landfill, you wonder how much dust is being stopped by the mask you're wearing and more importantly, how much you're breathing in. The whole task is daunting, morbid, and depressing. The loosened debris come by you mixed with concrete, rebar, mud, dirt, office furniture, parts, clothing, and every so often an employee ID with a photo of a smiling man or woman from perhaps Deutsche Bank or a myriad of other financial companies who rented office space in one of the towers. You try to keep your cool and stay focused, but you can't help to think if this person survived or is he or she gone forever? You pick up the ID cards and put them in bucket number two. Then for a long period of time, nothing but rubble comes by, and then pow! Like a slap in the face, another photo of a face looking up at you. A short time later, a man's shoe, then a baseball cap, then a woman's shoe, then a child's doll with blonde hair and crystal blue eyes. Everything is covered in soot and mud. You don't know how you're ever going to recognize a body part when everything is covered with soot. You're cold and at, at times tremble uncontrollably. Controllably. You are tired. Tired is an understatement. Your back and shoulders ache as you try to stay strong. On break, you enter a makeshift mess hall. You have to undress and leave your outer shell outdoors as well as scrub your boots before entering. The mess hall is a domed tent. The air is somehow purified or filtered and fed into the tent. There is some food as well as snacks and snack bars for you to have. A sign over the snacks cautions you, cautions you not to consume it outside the tent. Time resting goes quick. In the blink of an eye, you're on the sifter again. It's hard to stay upbeat. Looking down at the conveyor belt for hours on end, looking at personal artifacts of someone who has basically been pulverized is depressing. Thoughts keep creeping into your head. No good thoughts for that matter. Just imagine every hurtful and depressing incident from childhood to the present coming back to you at that first moment. Everything from your first girlfriend's heartbreak to being told you're two-year-old 
perfect two-year-old baby needs glasses, and your father having cancer, to all the countless violent acts that you have witnessed on patrol. Working the sifter brings all the depressing memories back to you. You're in a perpetual low, and at the same time looking at and touching personal items and property on the conveyor of people who quite possibly died during the collapse of the towers. At the end of the shift, you're relieved by another detective. You don't waste time. You grab your buckets and are gone like the guy before you in the blink of an eye. You take the two-hour drive back home only on the way back. It's rush hour, and it takes you now three hours. You work the landfill shift once a week every week. As the weeks go by, you're better prepared and know what to bring to be more comfortable for the long day. One sunny day while on the sifter, something goes by the belt that looks maybe too round and much too perfect to be a rock or a piece of concrete. As it goes by, you snatch it out of the rubble, barely picking it up before it's lost forever. You roll it around your hand and right away you know that it's a human joint. The head not like the socket. It's perfectly free of flesh, like it's been exposed to some serious heat. You notice the underside is sheared off and notice the bones honeycombing that you expect to see at the inside of the bone. The first thing that comes to mind is that it resembles the head of a humerus at the shoulder. I look up across the sifter and my counterpart detective is looking up at me. I motion moving my shoulder signaling I found remains and I think it's part of an arm or a shoulder. He is an anonymous detective from God knows what command, but he is like me. He probably left his own family in the dark to come here and do a terrible job and will probably reach home past dark and will be entirely exhausted emotionally, physically and mentally and will not get any recognition for what he is doing at the landfill. But it doesn't matter to him because he doesn't require any. But through his mask, I can see a smile appear, and he gives me a big thumbs up that I have never forgotten. Now, years later, with some medical training, I realized what I found was a femoral head shaved off at the neck. A few weeks later, while working at the landfill area, I'm relieved to go for lunch. And while walking to the mess hall tent across an open field, I trip over a stick poking out of the ground just next to the road the dump trucks use. At first, I just keep walking and shake my head. As I keep walking, something stops me in my tracks. Call it intuition, call it whatever you like, but something or someone has gotten a hold of me and is not letting me leave the spot. I walk back a few yards to the spot where I chipped, tripped. I thought to myself, hey, this ground is capped and there should be no sticks or roots coming up through the soil. Upon looking down, a white object is sticking up. Upon reaching it and picking it up, I notice I found a rib. I walk straight to the morgue and hand it over and I'm told, hey, that's a human rib probably fell off one of the dump trucks bringing up debris. My time at the landfill and the ground zero, although physically and emotionally taxing, has served to strengthen me to this day. It has been stated that over 4,000 human artifacts were recovered during the recovery efforts at Fresh Kills Landfill, leading to DNA matches to some 300 victims of 9-11. I'm hoping that I was instrumental in helping a wife, daughter, mother, or brother get closure with this tragic ordeal by helping identify at least one victim to the remains I recovered at the landfill. Those, sp those days spent on the hill will always be with me. That was written by a retired Andre Ruggieri, retired New York City detective. Well, I remember reading it, um, and it, it, it brought me there. Well, how does your life the same after you have that job? Exactly. After you know, you're sifting through stuff that's people. And... You know, it's funny because I, I spoke to him. I actually spoke to him on the telephone the other morning. We had, we had a great conversation. And th these first responders, the men and women, they, they responded to Ground Zero and the, the landfill. 
but they still had all these other personal problems that they had to deal with, uh, whether it was uh, matrimonial problems or health problems or a sick child or a sick parent, and they had to take everything and put it on the back burner and say, hey, we'll deal with this when I get back. That's what we have to do as police. You have to compartmentalize things. You have to take something. You have to take the uh, great kills um, dump and all the body parts you find and put it in a compartment in your head and shut the compartment so that you can deal with the rest of your life. Because how do you do everything else while you're thinking about body parts and, you know, an, an arm and a rib and, you know, a wallet and pictures of people who you know aren't around anymore? You see, you find a photo ID. And how do you go about then, you know, picking up your eight-year-old daughter from ballet classes and smile at them, you know? So that's why you see, you know, law enforcement and other stressful jobs. It's not just law enforcement. But when you see these tragic things, it's, it's something that most people, it's not a normal thing to deal with. And so sometimes, you know, we don't seek help and we, you know, look for a, a temporary solution to a, a permanent solution to a temporary, temporary problem. problem. And uh, it's tragic. It's very tragic, and uh, unfortunately, 9-11 was a level that nobody has seen before. And hopefully we never see again. No, hopefully. Um, it's horrible. It's horrible. Um, you know, it's funny. When the majority of 9-11 was over and uh, taken care of, there were a small percentage of first responders that stayed on the scene to, to finish up. And the other large percentage was told, okay, go back to your normal routine. Uh, and thing is, you just swarmed in death and destruction. Now forget it and hit the streets. You know, it's business as usual. Just hit the streets and right. deal with everything that you deal with. And uh, they did. But the thing is, nothing would ever be normal again for these right. people ever again. Yeah, it's something. Yeah, it's hard to, um, you know, just go back and, okay, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Now go do your job and um, right. perform. So you know? Forget everything that you just right. endured for right. weeks and months. Okay. I want to remind everyone, if you or someone you know are interested in broadcasting your podcast from the podcast studio, give Broadcast Beat Studios a call at 954-363-2908. It's that time again. I want to thank our guest, Brian Fair, for joining us tonight. Brian, thank you. Well, thanks for having me. I uh, really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation, so and I, I hope you'll come back and join us again. Anytime. Just to send the invite. I'll be here. Okay. And I want to remind everyone you can join our broadcast live every Thursday night at 7 p.m. on our Observations Facebook page or the YouTube page. If you or someone you know would like to appear as a guest on the show, you can book your appearance on the Cobservations Facebook page, or you can email the studio directly at cobservations at yahoo.com. As we do with every episode, we're going to end it with honoring the lives of our fallen brothers and sisters. Tonight, we honor Inspector Donald G. Fesser of the New York City Police Department, New York, whose end of watch was on this day, September 12th, back in 2009. Inspector Fesser died from illness he contracted while inhaling toxic materials as he participated in the rescue and recovery efforts at the World Trade Center following the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. Inspector Fesser had responded to the World Trade Center on September 11th and commanded a unit that was instrumental in helping emergency vehicles pass and civilians escape. He was nearly killed when his vehicle was crushed as one of the towers fell. 
Following the attack, Inspector Fessler spent many hours at the Grand Zhao site as part of the rescue recovery. Inspector Fessler had served with the New York City Police Department for 37 years and was the commanding officer of the Manhattan Traffic Task Force. On the morning of September 11, 2001, 72 officers from a total of eight local, state, and federal agencies were killed when terrorist hijackers working for the Al-Qaeda terrorist network headed by Osama bin Laden crashed four hijacked planes into the World Trade Center towers in New York City, the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, and a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. After the impact of the first plane into World Trade Center's North Tower, putting the safeties of others before their own law enforcement officers with fire and EMS personnel, rushed into the burning Twin Towers of the World Trade Center to aid the victims and lead them to safety. Due to their quick actions, it's estimated that over 25,000 people were saved. As the evacuation continued, the South Tower unexpectedly collapsed as a result of the intense fire caused by the impact. The North Tower collapsed a short time later. 70, 71 law enforcement officers, 343 members of the New York City Fire Department, and over 2,800 civilians were killed at the World Trade Center site. A third hijacked plane crashed into a field in rural Pennsylvania when the passengers attempted to retake control of the plane. One law enforcement officer who was a passenger in the plane was killed in that crash. The fourth hijacked plane was crashed into the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, killing almost 200 military and civilian personnel. No law enforcement officers were killed at the Pentagon on 9-11. The terrorist attacks resulted in the declaration of war against the Taliban regime the illegal rulers of Afghanistan and the Al-Qaeda terrorist network, which is also based in Afghanistan. On September 9, 2005, all of the public safety officers killed on September 11, 2001, were posthumously awarded the 9-11 Heroes Medal of Valor by President George Bush. The contamination of the air at the World Trade Center site caused many rescue personnel to become extremely ill and eventually led to the death of several workers. On May 1st, 2011, members of the United States military conducted a raid on a compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, and killed Osama bin Laden. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. We'll see you next Thursday. God bless all those first responders that are gone and still here and that responded. Till then, everybody stay safe, and God bless. Thank you.